All right. First Samuel four. Last week, we, we wrapped up looking at Samuel's calling. He's called to be a prophet. The entire nation from the north to the south of Israel recognizes Samuel is a prophet. The first message God gives to Samuel as a 12 year old little boy is to go to Eli, who's raised him for the last seven or eight years. He's a priest. He's the most powerful man in Israel at the time. And it's to say to him, God's going to judge you and your family. Samuel doesn't know Eli has previously received that word from an unnamed prophet. But as a 12-year-old, that's the first thing that God lays on his heart to share. He shares that with Eli, confirms that he is indeed a prophet. And the, the chapter 3 closes with, again, this recognition that all of Israel knows that Samuel has been called by the Lord. Um, this morning, a little depressing to be honest, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy of judgment against Eli and his family. Not the rosiest chapter in the world. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring this defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what shall this sh- What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So uh, Philistia is a nation in the southwest corner, borders the southwest corner of Israel. So you'll see here on the screen the, the red area, that map on the left, is Israel. Philist, uh, Philistia is what's bracketed in green. So not that big relative to Israel. Three times in Judges we see the Philistines encroaching on um, Israel's territory and oppressing them. And then what's that little pink box is blown up in the, mag, in the map on the right. So Shiloh, top right corner, that's where the tent of meeting is. Everything that we've seen uh, up to this point in 1 Samuel takes place there. That's where Samuel lives. It's where Eli lives. Uh, 20 miles away is Ebenezer, where Israel sets up camp. And then two miles from that is Aphek. That's the star on the top left corner where the Philistines set up camp. So they're a couple of miles away from each other. There's a battle. The Israelites lose 4,000 men. And the elders, the elders are the tribal leaders. Remember, there's no king at this time. So according to numbers, there's 70 tribal leaders at this point. This several hundred years later. There may be more. I don't know. But at least 70 men uh, who are the political leaders of these 12 tribes. Remember, they're more of a loose confederation of tribes than they are one nation at this point. These 70 men say, why did the Lord bring this defeat on us? They get it right. They recognized that they didn't lose because they didn't have a great strategy. They didn't lose because the Philistines were better warriors or better fighters. They lost because God was not with them. 
And so they say, why did God bring this defeat on us? I know what we need to do. Great idea. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant that's all the way back in Shiloh and let's bring it over. So this is a replica of the Ark. Uh, It's a box, wooden box overlaid with gold, about four feet by two feet by two feet. And in it are the tablets that Moses wrote the Ten Commandments on. A jar of manna, that's what God fed the Israelites with for 40 days in the wilderness. And a staff of Aaron that had budded. And, and the, the point of that was to show that God had chosen Aaron and his family to be high priests. So that's what's in the box. And there are very specific uh, instructions in Exodus on how that box needed to be made. That on top of that box there was a lid. And you had these two angelic beings called cherubim that were on top of the lid. And what God said is, I'm going to live right in between those two guys. So Moses, when you need to hear from me, I'm going to talk to you from where those two wing, where those wings meet. That's, people call that the mercy seat, or it's a representation of the throne of God on earth. So if God lives on the earth, that's where he's living. And he's speaking to Moses from that place. You can see that scripture up on the screen from Exodus 25. And so that ark is in the Holy of Holies in this tabernacle. And what the elders say is, we need that. Let's get it. And when we bring it back, God will be with the ark. It's the first time like, we talk about putting God in a box. And they literally thought God lived in that box. And so we're going to bring that here. And so that, and, and that means God will bless us. One time in Israel's history had the ark been deployed in battle. And it was when God explicitly said the beginning of uh, the conquest of Canaan. In Joshua, I think it's chapter 6. God said, sit Send the ark around Jericho. You remember that story, marching around the walls of Jericho and the walls come down? The ark was involved in that. God said, lead with the ark. And it's the only time that we see in all of the Old Testament, up to this point, the ark being used in battle. All of the pagan nations always brought some image or representation of their God into battle because they were saying, our gods are fighting for us. Israel never did except that one time in Joshua where it was explicitly commanded by the Lord. They're, they're, they're Treating the, the ark like a, a rabbit's foot. It's a good luck charm. Hey, we, we'll bring it with us and, in, and God will be there and he'll, he'll help us win. It's interesting they ask this question. Why does the Lord bring defeat on us? And they, from what I can tell, they don't spend any time trying to come up with the answer. Samuel's a prophet. We just read that last week. The entire nation from the north to the south recognized Samuel's a prophet. He's a guy who hears from God. He's a spokesperson for God to the nation. If you want to know what God is doing, it makes sense that you might call that guy and ask him and say, what, what's going on? Can you ask the Lord on our behalf? They don't. They've got a guy who they know hears from the Lord on behalf of their nation and they don't go to him. It makes me wonder if they even want to know the answer to the question. They jump straight to let's get the ark. Why do we want the ark? Because if we bring the ark, then God will come as well. And so they go back to Shiloh. They bring the ark back, bring it into battle. The entire army is, is pumped. They're really excited. They're two miles away from the Philistines, and the Philistines can hear them yelling. That's how excited they are. Like, God's in our midst now, and the Philistines are scared. They've heard of God's reputation. They know about the plagues. They know about the Red Sea. They know what he did to the Egyptians, and they're scared. And they say, guys, we've got to man up. If, if we don't buckle down, if we don't fight, then we're going to be subject to them the way they have been to us. And again, there's three times in Judges where we see the Philistines um, oppressing the Israelites. And they know that that's what's going to happen to us. And so there's a fight. And Israel loses huge, worse than they did the first time. 30,000 men are killed. 
The ark is captured, never happened before in history. Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, are killed. It's, it's the beginning of this fulfillment of the word of judgment on Eli and his family at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2. This unnamed prophet says to Eli, you're going to see distress in the house of the Lord. When the ark gets stolen, that's what that is. Your two sons are going to die on the same day, and that's going to be a sign to you that everything I'm saying to you is going to come true. And that's what we see, his two sons dying on the same day. Remember, Eli was a terrible dad, didn't exercise any discipline over his sons. He participated in their corruption, and his sons were wicked, wicked, wicked to the core, persistently for years. And finally, God says, I'm done. I'm judging all of you. There's no forgiveness for these sins that you've persisted in for so long. And we see the beginning of that judgment here in chapter 4. And it gets even better. The same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So he's running 20 miles. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and said, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I had it, excuse me, I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. She said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So this guy, this messenger, runs back 20 miles, at, uh, dirt on the head, torn clothes. That's a sign of grief. Eli's blind, so he doesn't, he doesn't pick up on the visual clues. But he's sitting at the, 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 the entrance. He's waiting to hear from somebody. He's in this chair. And it's, it, we, we read that his heart feared for the ark of God. So it, in Israel this time, you had the holy of holies. So you have this tabernacle or this tent of meeting. You have a holy place and a most holy place. And only the priest and his family can enter the most holy place. And only once a year. But everything in that tabernacle is portable. It's meant to be moved around, including the ark. So the ark can be moved. But there's lots of rules around who can touch it. Well, actually, nobody can touch it about how it can be prepared and who could carry it. And so you can see there, there's a scripture up there from Numbers that says, here's how when you're going to move the ark. You've got to put the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place on top of the ark. And then you've got to put more material on top of that. And then nobody can touch it or they die. So you run poles through these rings that were permanently attached to the ark. And this certain family from the tribe of Levi, they could carry the ark as long as they just touched those poles. So in order for these elders to go and get the ark, Eli had to sign off on it. Because he's the only one who could go in there and prepare it. So he said yes to them. And I, I'm guessing he's a spiritual idiot, but a, a, maybe there's some sensitivity still for him. Because there's this sense. He, he's wondering. 
Is he gonna, is, are things going to be okay? Again, he's, it, as we've read about him in these first four chapters, he appears clueless spiritually, and actually worse than clueless, he's, he's, he's corrupt in so many ways. But there's still something in his heart that he seems to have a, a sense or an intuition that things are probably not going to go well. There's no reason for him to fear for the ark if he truly believes the Lord's in it. There's no reason for him to. And the fact that he is makes me think he, he knows it wasn't a great idea. He knows God's not in whatever his, what, what the Israelites are doing at this moment. I'm sure he never forgot that prophecy that was spoken to him. He knows this idea of both of his sons dying on the same day. And he's probably thinking, well, they're going into battle at the same time. So very well, maybe today is the day. But his concern is primarily for the ark. And so this guy comes back and he tells Eli everything that happened. And it's this building of, of bad news. It's We were routed and everybody went home. When it says the people fled, we're not fighting anymore. And 30,000 people were killed and your sons were killed and the ark was captured. And he falls over in his chair and he dies because he was heavy. That word heavy, most of the time in the Bible is used metaphorically. There's two times where it's used literally. This is one. Eli was fat. He was overweight. And the weight, his weight caused him when he fell over, his neck broke. But that word also is used metaphorically to, to speak to the condition of people's heart. It's used of Pharaoh seven or eight times in Exodus. Your Bible, if you have an NIV or something, it says that Pharaoh's heart was harder or Pharaoh became stubborn. Literally, it says Pharaoh's heart was heavy. His heart was heavy towards the Lord. Eli was both. He was physically heavy and spiritually he, he was heavy as well. His heart was stubborn. His heart was hard be, before the Lord in both of those reasons. That's why he died, for, for both of those reasons. Not just the physical, but for the spiritual as well. And so Eli dies. And then his daughter-in-law goes into labor. She's shocked and she goes into labor and she dies during childbirth, which was not uncommon should the highest and best for a woman during this period of time was to have a son. So even though she's dying, her midwife wants to encourage her and say, it's like you're going out on top. You have a, this is a, it's a boy. And the, Phineas's wife is listless at best. And she says, I'm naming him Ichabod because the glory of God has departed. The glory of God's left because the ark has been captured. And again, you begin to see the dominoes fall in the house of Eli, his entire family is falling under judgment. And that's something that he knew would happen. And we begin to see that getting played out again. It's a great positive story for us on a Sunday morning. So what does it mean? What do, what do we pull from that? When I read that, the thing that jumps out at me is the danger of formalism. Just going through the motions, being on autopilot. These elders... They just go and they grab the ark, and in their mind, if we've got the ark, then we've got God. And if we've got the priest, then we've got the guys who mediate before us and God. So that's all we need. We can win, because we've got God and we've got the priest with us, the God being represented in the ark. And the saddest part of all of that is they don't even know God's not with them until it's too late. You wonder, like, how long has it been since they've actually encountered or related to God personally, that they don't even know that he's not in their midst. Every place that you see God showing up in the Old Testament, there's no question that he did. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's his heaviness. It's that same word, his weight of his glory. People fall down. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's, it's obvious when God's in your midst. Particularly, you see that in the Old Testament. There's no sense of that here. And they don't even realize it. 
until it's too late. They go to battle and they lose 30,000 guys, including Hophni and Phinehas, and the ark gets captured. Throughout the Old Testament, there's, a, there's this ditch that the Israelites continue to fall in. It's if we cross our T's and dot our I's. If, as long as we check all the boxes, then God's okay with us. So let's make sure we sacrifice the right animals in the right way at the right time. And then God, it doesn't matter. The condition of our heart, the character of our lives, it's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is for us to follow the letter of the law. God, particularly through the prophets, continually says to them, that's not what I'm about. There are a few scriptures that are up on the screen, and I can multiply that by three or four or five pointing out instances in the Old Testament where God says, that's not what I'm about. I don't care about the sheep. I don't care about the bulls. I don't care about the goats. The reason we have those sacrifices is it's an external reminder to you that sin has been forgiven so that you can relate to me freely and fully. But for you to think that's the deal, sacrificing an animal in the right way, you've you've completely missed what I'm going for. You see that last Bullet point, Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord range to and fro over the whole earth, looking to strongly support someone whose heart is fully his. It's what he's always been after, his hearts. From the time he created Adam and Eve, what he's always been after are the hearts of people. He's looking to form a family, people who relate to him as children relate to their father. He's not interested. At one point he says, what makes you, you don't have to feed me. I'm not hungry. Why are you bringing me all the animals? I own every one anyway. That's what he says. If I needed something, I'm not going to ask you for it. They completely missed the boat time and time and time again. Thinking what God cares about is the ritual. Let's just follow the form. Let's just make sure that we show up in Jerusalem on the right day and bring the right amount of flour and the right amount of wine and the right animal and sacrifice it in the right way. Then we'll go about our business and we'll come back again next year. God, they miss it. Same thing you see in the Gospels. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees. You guys don't get it. You worship me or you praise me with your lips. Your hearts are far Far from me. To the Pharisees who've got the entire Old Testament memorized and most of the teachings of the rabbis memorized. He says, you're searching those things, looking for eternal life. You don't recognize they point to me. You've missed the forest for the trees. You tithe your spices, mint and dill, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. Go and learn what it means. When God says, I desire mercy or faithfulness and not sacrifice. That's what Jesus says to the leading religious tendency to fall into formalism. Cross the T's, dot the I's, check the boxes. That's all that God cares about. We fall into the same trap. You don't carry an ark around. That's not what, that's not what we do. That's not the thing for us. But so easy for us, whether it's prayer, worship, fasting, giving, Bible study. We're just checking the boxes. We're going through where we're, it's autopilot. Some of you literally pray the same words every day. You don't know, you're not even thinking about them. Like it should push play. You're going through the same reading plan. You're showing up and maybe you're saying, maybe you don't, but you're not engaging heart wise. Don't hear that as guilt. It's just, it's, where, it's, it's a temptation for all of us. There's a tendency for all of us to fall into this ditch of formalism and somehow think that what God cares most about is us meeting the marks and checking the boxes 
and we forget what he's looking for is a heart that's fully his. Jesus in John 4 says this to a Samaritan woman. He's like, you don't get worship. You don't understand. You're going after the wrong things. God is spirit and he is seeking. You think about that. We talk about seeking God. What about what God seeks? He's actively looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth with their head and with their heart, with their emotions and with their mind. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. Can you imagine? Do you want to be the one who God is looking for? When he looks out over Marietta and Cobb County, he's looking for a heart that's completely his. Is that you? He's looking for someone who worships him in spirit and truth. Are you one of those? Do you engage with him? Again, it's not, don't just think about singing and what we do in here. Worship is giving God what he deserves in every area of life. This is one expression, but it's not the only one for sure. Do you engage him with your heart and with your mind, your emotions and with your thoughts? For some of us, that's difficult. We feel this tension, this battle internally between our hearts and between our minds. And for other, others of us, we try to walk this tightrope between them. Neither of those is a biblical approach. God has given you a heart and he's given you a brain. He's given you a heart and a mind, emotions and a mind. And, and, and both of those things are marred by the fall. Both of them are fallen. Both of them are are redeemed and restored when you come under the lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit can uh, redeem both of those things, your heart and your mind. Some of us are thinkers and some are feelers. And whichever way we're wired, that's our strong hand. But, and we can tend to look down on the other because it seems foreign to us in some ways. And so we sense this battle sometimes between our emotions and our thoughts. Some of us, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, we don't think emotion has any part to play at all. It makes us nervous. We're going to lose control or it's not sophisticated or reverent. Read the Bible. There's nothing in there. There's nothing in there that says be afraid of your emotions or relate to God strictly out of your intellect. Some of us are the other way. We're all about butterflies and warm, fuzzy feelings. We don't know anything about anything. The only thing we know about God is what somebody tells us. You haven't cracked a Bible in who knows how long. You're not, you're, not, you're not growing in terms of your understanding of who he is. We want both. It's spirit and in truth. Heart and head. And don't think about balance. Balance isn't a biblical concept. It's not 50-50 heart-mind. It's all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. He wants all of all of it. Not some of all of it. Fully engage. Don't go into autopilot. And I'm not saying that unless you have this deep sense of feeling, you shouldn't do something because then it's insincere. That's not true at all. Any of you that have been in any relationship over time, no discipline plays a part. If we only did what we wanted to, we wouldn't do very much. And if we only acted when we felt like it, then we wouldn't act very often. Don't hear me say that. There are times where your mind wanders and it's okay and your emotions are flat and that's okay. When I'm just, don't go through the motions. Don't, again, put yourself on autopilot. Don't think that what God cares about are the externals. That's not, there's nothing in the Bible to say that. To say that what God is looking for is this proper religious performance. And that's what satisfies him. We don't bring animals to a temple any longer. But so as they, well, I prayed the Lord's Prayer, so I'm okay. 
Super common in the Bible Belt. Are you following Jesus? Well, this is the church I go to. That's not an answer to the question. Are you trusting Jesus? I was baptized when I was 10. Wonderful. That's not an answer to the question. At all. We live in a place where culturally it's easy to identify with Jesus. And the question for me when I look in our city and our county is, how many people would say, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God? That's my highest and my best. My priority for me and for my family, for my business, if I own that, is to say, I'm seeking first the kingdom. Saddest verse in the Bible, one of them. Judges 16, 20. Y'all know Samson, he was an idiot. He was like a he-man, super strong. Never lost a fight. And he falls for this girl named Delilah who's terrible. And she says to him, Samson, tell me the, sto- the secret of your strength. And he says, wrap me up with seven bow strings, seven guitar strings. And I'll, I'll lose my strength. And so she puts him to sleep in her lap and wraps him up in these bow strings. And then the Philistines come in. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he gets up and breaks off the bow strings and defeats them. And in my mind, I'm like, Samson. You told her. How else did you get wrapped up if it didn't come from her? And then she says to him again, she starts pouting and says, you made a fool of me. How, tell me the secret. And he says, well, if you wrap me up in seven new ropes, then I'll lose my strength. So puts him to sleep, wraps him up in seven new ropes. Samson, the Philistines are here. Breaks off the ropes and defeats them. Again, how do you not know where it's coming from? Samson, you're making a fool of me. You're humiliating me. Tell me the truth. Weave my hair. His hair's never been cut. That's the deal. His hair's never been cut. Weave my hair in this loom. I don't even know what that looks like. Hair into seven braids in a loom. Samson, the Philistines are here. Gets up, breaks the loom, I guess, defeats the Philistines. Three times he tells her something. That something happens to him somehow. But he wins. And then finally, the Bible says she nags him day after day after day. She wears him out, wears him down. And he says, my hair's never been cut. And she knows that's it. That's the one. Puts him to sleep on her lap, shaves his head. Samson, the Philistines are here. He gets up thinking, I've I've never lost. He's never lost a fight, no matter what the odds are. Never. I've never lost a fight. I'm not going to lose this one. And he gets up in that last phrase in chapter 16, verse 20. So sad. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. He didn't even know. He's captured by the Philistines. They gouge out his eyes. He dies in disgrace. He gets one last shot at them, and he does take out some of them when he goes. But he doesn't even realize the Lord has left him. And I think about me and wonder, do I live so disconnected from the Lord? Do I live so in my own strength? Do I live so walking in my own way that if God were to withdraw from me on some level, I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even know until it's too late. I wouldn't even know that God has stopped speaking to me because I'm never asking him. I would never know that God has stopped leading me because I'm not sensitive to that. I'd never know that God maybe has withdrawn from me because I'm never in his presence to begin with. See, that happened to, it happened to Samson. It happened to, to Israel. They didn't even know. Phineas' wife said the glory has departed. I don't know that she was correct. If the glory departed Israel, it wasn't because the ark got captured. It was because for the last 300 years, according to judges, everyone did as they saw fit. 
If you're going to do that for 300 years, what do you expect from the Lord? If you're going to live for 300 years saying, I'm not interested in relationship with you. I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm not interested in honoring you. I'm not interested in obeying you. What do you expect? He's looking for relationship. He's not looking for people who check boxes. He's looking for hearts that are fully his. Does he have yours this morning? If he's searching Marietta, and he is, he's saying, I'm looking for a heart that's all mine. Does he see you? That's one of mine. I can strongly support that. He's looking for people who worship him in spirit and truth. When he sees you to say, that's he, she, she's doing it. He's doing it. Doesn't mean you're perfect at all. But it means you're engaged. You don't want to be like Samson, where the Lord takes a step back and you don't even notice. Because you're not cultivating relationship with him on a regular basis. Let's pray. I don't want you to feel guilty. Guilt's a terrible motivator, so don't move in that. I want you to hear an invitation from a God in heaven who says, I don't want your stuff. I'm not interested. I don't want your animals. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want your money. If I needed something, I wouldn't even ask you. What I want is your heart. The God of the universe says, I want your heart. It's an incredible invitation. Does he have it this morning? Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Let today be the day. All you have to say is, God, have mercy on me. And he will. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to try harder. God's not looking to make bad people good or good people better. He makes dead people alive. You may have already said yes to Jesus. Are you, are you engaged? Don't create some impossible standard in your mind. It's just what your guts say. Are you engaged? Are you going through the motions? Are you dialed in? Not easy in May, those of you who have kids especially. So many things are pulling at you. Are you engaged? Are you engaging God with your emotions and with your mind? Does he have your heart in your head? Holy Spirit, would you move across this room in these last couple of minutes that we have together? I do pray if there are any here who are estranged from the Father, would today be the day? That they hear you, Father, in their language saying, come home. That they hear the invitation from heaven to be reconciled to you. For those who have already said yes to Jesus, would you give us grace? Would you stir a hunger in our hearts 
that we would seek first your kingdom. Our highest and our best would be to engage with you, with our hearts and with our minds on a regular basis. So many things compete with you for attention. So many substitutes. God, I pray, again, just stir that hunger in us that nothing else could satisfy. God, I pray for those of us who are, we don't, we don't know how to engage relationally. We, we don't know how to, how to bring our emotions into the mix. Would you give us grace there, God, for those of us who the Bible's so confusing. It's hard to figure out where to start or how to read or what to get out of it. Would you help us there? Would there be grace for us to worship you in spirit and in truth? God, capture the hearts of the men and women in this room. That when your eyes range to and fro over this city, God, I pray that you would find the heart of every man and woman sitting here fully yours so that you could strongly support. In Jesus' name.